this talk is part of a, a larger <coughs> work in progress, and I've tried to, um, hmm, it worked a second ago. Let me turn it off, put it back on again. There we go. Um, so this talk's part of a larger work of, in progress that I've, I've tried to um, pick parts out of it that will make a coherent whole without, <laughs> I can't tell you all the pieces in 30 minutes, so we'll see how good a job I did of that. But um, So I want to start by thinking about what's wrong with a certain kind of theory that I actually find quite compelling and attractive. And we, we had a bit of a, I, Anthony actually set me up well for this um, yesterday in his talk. So full information theories of well-being are um, full information desire theories uh, that take what's good for you to be um, what your fully informed self would want you to want, the sort of theory that Railton advocates. Um, these kinds of theories have uh, they've been counterexampled to death by various people, uh, and the kinds of challenges that have been raised to them have to do with whether vivid reflection on all the facts really guarantees that the responses of the ideal observer or the ideal advisor to you are, would be normative, uh, whether there's a kind of alienation between the desires that your ideal, fully informed self would have and your actual self. So the, the challenge of whether your actual self could recognize what your ideal advisor thinks is good for you as good for you. Um, Connie Rosati raises a question about whether um, preferences about lives, uh, fully informed preferences over lives is even a coherent notion. I think uh, Krista was kind of alluding to that sort of problem. Um, so I, I'm going to put the basic problem this way. If the ideal of the fully informed advisor's preferences for your preferences can be specified as a detailed sort of um, ideal, a goal for your life at all, uh, so if it isn't in just incoherent, then it risks being a goal that's alien to the person whose well-being it's supposed to define. Um, and the alienation is a problem if you think well-being has to be relativized to subjects in some way or other. Nevertheless, despite all these problems, I still find these theories attractive. I'm not going to say a whole <coughs> lot about why, because this talk really focuses on something else, though I'll say a little bit about it. Um, but I think we need to think about uh, what I'm calling idealized subjective theories in a different way from the way that uh, the full information theory thinks about them. So what I'm going to do is talk about the kind of ideal, ideally, the ideal subjective theory I favor that I'm calling uh, about the value fulfillment theory. I'll say something very brief about uh, why you might want to think about well-being this way, um, but that really will be quite brief. Um, the value fulfillment theory, as I understand it, does um, utilize, does employ an ideal. Uh, but that ideal is very broad, and it's like a paradigm that's quite abstract and doesn't have, it is not very well elaborated. So in order to apply the theory to a case, um, or to apply it in real life, you need to move beyond the ideal to something much more specific. Uh, so then the bulk of this talk is actually about this idea of how we move beyond the ideal. And I think moving beyond the ideal uh, to do that, we need to tell a different story um, from the story that full information theories tell. Um, and that story has to do with um, how in practice, uh, in a practical context, 
do you um, elaborate this paradigm or abstract notion of the good life for a person. Um, so I'm going to focus on one practical context in particular, which is the context of helping our friends. And I mean friends fairly broadly to include um, loved ones, but per intimate personal relationships. And then I'll go back, after that section, I'll go back to the problem for full information theories and ask, you know, how does this different way of looking at ideal subjective theories, how does that solve the problem? So just to give you hopefully enough uh, detail about the theory to, for you to understand what I'm saying uh, without going into too much detail and taking up all my time doing it, um, the basic idea is that achieving well-being is having stable values that em engage both your emotion and your judgment and succeeding in terms of these values over the long term. So values, um, I define in a, in a specific way that's going to be um, anathema to many people in this room. Um, I'm thinking of values, I'm very much working here in a subjectivist tradition, in the tradition of subjective theories of well-being. I take value, valuing is what I start with, the attitude of valuing something, and I take what it is to be, to value something is to have uh, a relatively stable pattern of dispositions to act, feel, and judge that um, where that pattern of dispositions is one that we take to give us reasons to do things, reasons that are relevant to our plans, and also reasons that are relevant to how we evaluate how our lives are going. Uh, so for example, if you value being a parent, um, you're disposed to let uh, your relationship to your child figure into the planning of your life. You'll be disposed to feel very proud when your child gives you a best mom mug. Uh, you'll be disposed to feel ashamed of yourself when you forget to pick her up at daycare and things like that. Um, it's going to be a fairly complex attitude, the attitude of valuing. Um, I should say that I take um, people's valuing attitudes to um, exist on a continuum. So one might have more of the emotional component and less of the kind of um, the more somewhat more cognitive component. Um, and there might be individual differences depending on the kind of well-being subject that we're talking about. So there might be some subjects for whom valuing is really mostly emotional and not, there isn't much cognition there and that those sort of differences are fine with me. So the best life in terms of well-being <coughs> is the most valueful life. And that, uh, the life with the most value fulfillment is a very broad notion. It's a model or an ideal or a paradigm. It's actually kind of, a, it's a regulative ideal. Um, that has to be specified in order to apply the theory to a practical context. That's the basic picture. Uh, why think about well-being in this way? And this really is a very long story, so I'm just gesturing here. But the, um, I think it, the, the view retains a lot of the, it, it's, a, it's a view that's analogous to preference satisfaction theories. It's, you, could, you could think of it as a version of a desire satisfaction theory where it's only certain kinds of desires, a special subset that we're focused on. And so it retains some of the advantages of those theories while I think it does solve some of the problems that they've had historically. Um, I think it offers a compelling explanation of prudential reasons, but that's a very long story. 
mainly, I think, um, well-being, theories of well-being ought to do uh, two things that are in tension with each other, and they need to explain um, why well-being is good, and they also need to explain why it's good for the subject whose well-being it is. I think this point can be put in different terms, and after hearing Brad talk this morning, I should have put it in different terms, but it was not quickly enough that uh, I heard you, you know, raise um, doubts about the phrase good for, but I, I, I find it a somewhat illuminating phrase. So paradigmatically good lives are going to be, as I said, uh, very broadly defined, and um, they're going to be uh, what it, you know the implication of my being um, a, a kind of subjectivist about well-being is that what values, what basic values are on the list of um, in, in a paradig paradigmatically good life is going to depend on the subject that we're talking about. But there's a great deal of similarity across um, normal human adults about what kinds of basic values people have. So this list on the, on the bottom left is actually Martin Seligman's list of well-being ingredients. It's the PERMA model. So you can see the acronym um, PERMA on the side. Uh, this is a list that's derived from various um, value surveys um, that um, large social science uh, research studies that aim to um, assess what people in various cultures and countries uh, value. Uh, so basically, a paradigmatically good life is one in which, you know, you spend your leisure time um, in an enjoyable way, have meaningful relationships with um, friends and family, have uh, mean meaningful work at which you're somewhat successful, or some combination of those things, the which of those gets more priority will vary depending on the person. It's a complex matter to determine exactly what the shape of the life will look like. But I hope the idea uh, that it's not so hard to identify a paradigm is, um, is clear. So because the paradigms are, well, frankly, vague, um, when you want to make a specific judgment about how people are doing. So if you want to assess someone's welfare uh, in order to help them and make them better off, the paradigm has to be fleshed out. It, there, it has to be spelled out in detail exactly what a good life would consist in. And it, specifying the paradigm is, I think, a really complex matter. Um, there are a lot of, so here are, are the sort of main considerations that go into what counts as uh, filling out the details of a paradigmatically good life or a model of a good life. Uh, what the individual core values of the subject are, what standards they impose, by which I mean what counts as succeeding in terms of those values, how, what, what the strengths are and what the relative strengths are of the various values, and the various ways in which these values are related to each other um, over time. So some of those relationships will be means-ends relationships, uh, have basic or ultimate values, and then certain other things that you value, you value only as a means to those things. 
But many of the relationships will be, I think, uh, constitutive so that you have um, some ultimate, very um, abstract sort of value like happiness and it's <coughs> constituted, constituted in certain ways by other things you value. There will also be relationships between values of justification. So some values you take to be a reason for uh, the, the thing that makes other things you do worthwhile. Um, so I think this process of specifying the ideal is quite complex. There will also be, given um, the complexity and just given the nature of values, I think uh, there's not going to be any precise measure. And there are going to be various equally good specifications at any particular time that you look at this. Um, and those which, how you could specify the ideal and to make an actual life, an actual livable life, will change as the person lives their life and closes off certain options and opens others. Um, in my experience, aging is mostly about closing off options, <laughs> but who knows, there might be some that open as well. So what's good for a person is to live the most valuable life that they can live, and what's good for a person now is to do what contributes to some specification of that ideal or paradigmatically valuable life. Um, so the theory does employ an ideal, and that introduces the possibility of a gap between the values that you currently have and the values that would be most uh, would contribute most uh, to the most valuable life. Um, now, I think that the gap is most likely to exist between uh, specific instantiations of abstract values. So, as opposed to the gap being between uh, your core or ultimate values now in the actual and your ideal core or ultimate values. Uh, so, I think the kind of gap that's most likely is. Um, between the way that you, so let's take for example, um, friendship and you conceive of the value of friendship in a certain way now, perhaps you think the more friends the better. What I need is to uh, increase my social network and have lots of socializing with lots of different people. Um, but later in life you learn, uh, or, or sorry, I should say, but really what would be ideal for you is you'd have a more valueful life if you focused on a few key relationships and sort of did a better job being a friend in those, in those few relationships. So that's a case in which the actual way that you instantiate the value of friendship for yourself now is different from how you would instantiate it in the ideal. But the core value, there's something, uh, there's a core value of friendship that persists um, over time. So that's where I think the gap is most likely to be, though I do think it's possible for a person's um, ultimate values to be unideal. So we can, I think we can imagine um, people who value uh, power, somebody gave this example the other day actually, people who value power for its own sake, um, and you might think um, the valuing power over other, other people is just not going, to, no matter how it's specified, is not going to contribute to the most valuable life over time. So there can be examples where it's your core or basic values that are unideal. The 
fact that there's this possibility of a gap between actual and ideal means uh, it produces a challenge for people who want to help you. So, um, and the, I think the reason the challenge comes from the possibility of disagreement about the gap. Uh, so if you want to help your friend um, and you think their values are mistaken, um, they might not agree with you, and then and then there's a, a then you have a disagreement between what uh, your friend thinks is the best <coughs> life for him and what you think is the best <coughs> life for him. So just to give us a case uh, to follow through for the rest of this section, um, imagine your friend Henry here, who wants to write the great American novel. Uh, do people want to write the great British novel? Is that a thing? Okay. I don't know. He wants to write a novel that will win the Man Booker Prize. He wants to be a great writer. And he's had some success. He's not a terrible writer. He's not enjoying his success here, but he has had some success in the past. He's won some awards and some fellowships and had a few things published. But it's pretty clear to you, and let's say that you're right, he's not gonna be a great novelist. He's, an o he's okay, but he's not gonna be great. And he now has um, acquired uh, children and responsibilities to um, pay for their upkeep. And his, um, the value that he places on being a novelist is causing trouble for his ability to support his family. So his, um, let's say his partner is uh, kind of disgruntled and dissatisfied with him. Uh, it's causing ripples at home. Um, maybe his children aren't starving, but you know they're not going to the best school. Um, and he's just very stubbornly stuck with this view that the most valuable thing for him, his most valuable project, is to contribute to literature and to be a writer. You might see things quite differently from Henry. You might think, look, um, what Henry really wants, what he really needs in his life is to make some kind of artistic contribution. He needs to maintain some kind of creative aspect to his life, but he doesn't have to do that by being a writer. He could get a job that would allow him to support his family and write on the side. Many successful artists in life, you might think, have taken this road where they've uh, picked up jobs that are, you know, not their dream job and not what they've always wanted to do, but nevertheless, uh, you know, provide an income, and then they've done their art on the side, and this, this, you know, it's not, it's not an unheard of choice to make. Um, now, I, I actually uh, have friends like this. Um, they're not all like this anymore, but I have had friends at this. That it, uh, of this kind, and, and in my experience, it's very tricky to try to counsel a friend who's in this sort of position, and it's fraught with risk of uh, doing some damage. So the question arises whether it's ever a good idea in terms of trying to promote your friend's well-being, so does it make sense in welfare terms, to discount or ignore or override a friend's actual values when you believe that their actual values are not contributing to the ideal. So I think there are a couple of different kinds of challenges here. 
um, in trying to help a friend when you have this sort of, if this is the kind of theory of well-being you've, you've got. One sort of challenge is you might call a computational challenge. It's just there's too much to know and there are so many ways in which you could be wrong. You could be wrong about what the paradigmatically good life is for your friend. You could be wrong about how the paradigm, what the detailed description of the paradigm should look like in his particular case. You could be wrong about what changes are required for him to get from A to B. You could be wrong about what changes the person's capable of making. You might not understand his psychology enough. Um, and the, the sorts of solutions that there are, you know, this is not an easy problem to solve, but it's easy what would to, to see what would take to solve it. Uh, you need to have more knowledge. Um, given how difficult it is to come up to, to acquire that kind of knowledge, it is some comfort that there are a lot of reasonable assumptions you can make, at least about the first point, about what a good life for a person is in the broadest terms. Um, because people really do value, in, a, um, in terms of their basic ultimate values, many of the same things. But the next kind of challenge the other, the other sort of challenge is an interpersonal challenge, and I think this is the one I find more interesting and, and more troubling, which is that sometimes uh, discounting or ignoring or overriding your friend's values can actually make things worse. Uh, first, it can make things worse because of the previous problem that you might not know what you're talking about. So if they were to listen to you, uh, they might then screw up their lives and things would be worse than they would have been if you had kept your mouth shut. But secondly, even if you do know what you're talking about, or at least you have um, good evidence, you're justified in, in thinking you know what you're talking about, uh, you might not help to increase their well-being um, because your help might be ineffective or you might damage a valuable relationship. And here I think is really the, the biggest risk that often, um, trying to get someone to change their life in ways that are as intimate as, uh, are in ways that are so intimate that they require suggesting that the person isn't valuing the right things or isn't valuing what they value in the right way. Um, that can create a lot of friction among friends. Um, it can cause a good deal of resentment. Um, it can cause an end to the friendship. Um, if you think about, uh, I'm sure many people have had the experience of having a friend who's dating someone that's a disaster for them, and if you advise them of your true opinion of their chosen partner, and then they end up marrying that person, that, that is usually the end of it. You don't get invited to the wedding. Um, you also might prevent whatever, uh, it's, it's not the case that if your values are less than ideal, uh, less than they would be in, in a life that contributes to the most valuable life, that there's no good that could ever come from pursuing them. So if you, uh, if, if you succeed in pers persuading a person to change their values and you're not, <laughs> and if the margins of, uh, of how much more value there is in this choice or the other, if you're slightly off about that, um, you might prevent them from achieving the good that they could um, that they could get from pursuing something that maybe wasn't ideal but still brought uh, valued rewards. Like uh, maybe Henry will never be the great novelist, but 
It might be that failing on his own and coming to realize it without your help is better for him than, uh, than your intervening. So here I don't think there's a simple solution. Um, and I think what friends need to think about is, what, what friends need to do is to think very carefully about the circumstances before you try to engage in this kind of helping. Uh, and and these, are, these are the conditions that it strikes me are necessary for, um, for it to make sense in well-being terms, to discount or, or ignore or override a friend's actual values when you're trying to improve their well-being. So, um, and these are all matters of degree, and I'll say a bit more about that in, the, in a second, but the beneficiary's value, the person you're trying to help, their values are, really are inappropriate or risky. So, you know, it's not just that they're buying the wrong brand of toothpaste, but they're sort of throwing their lives away or causing some serious, or, or taking serious risks with respect to others of their values such as the, uh, supporting their families. Um, that there's a way in which the beneficiary can change. Uh, that the relationship between the helper and the beneficiary is such that taking this action isn't going to cause more harm to the relationship or obviously to the person being helped. And then finally, that the person helping is in a good epistemic position with respect to these things. And that I think all of these... Um, conditions are a matter of degree. So again, it's not that it's easy to make these assessments, but these are the considerations that I think need to be taken into account. Um, the point about uh, the relationship between the helper and the beneficiary, I think is the most, um, it, the most interesting and, and the most difficult to assess. So I wanted to say a little bit more about that. I think the features, the, the variables that are relevant here in determining whether you have the kind of relationship where it does make sense to ignore or override or un undermine your friend's actual values for the sake of their well-being in the long term um, are these four. Uh, there has to be some intimacy, by which I mean there has to be some um, mutual understanding some trust so that the beneficiary has to believe that you have their best interests at heart uh, if you know them really well but they think that your person you're trying to help believes that you're um, out to get them that's not a good idea so um, ex-spouses know you very well but uh, you might not trust their intentions when and uh, their advice might not be welcome skills of communication so that um, I think skills of, of communication and emotional intelligence are essential for uh, preventing certain of the kinds of harms that can be done to the relationship itself. And finally, I think it's quite relevant uh, the extent to which the lives of the helper and the helpee are intertwined. So um, if the person that you're trying to advise, say, let's say Henry is your husband, um, that makes a difference to whether it can be appropriate to discount Henry's values because, well, to put it kind of crudely, you pay for his stupid decisions um, because you have to live with him and you're counting on his income. So I think there, there, when there's a special uh, relationship or uh, 
in certain kinds of relationships, there are special responsibilities on the part of either the helper or the helpee. So I wanted to point out that um, this is not something I've thought through fully, but I, I, I think that this way of understanding um, helping on the basis of a friendship relationship and what the conditions are for the appropriateness of this kind of helping, um, analogies can be made to other kinds of relationships. So to um, parent and child, to citizen and state, uh, and to perhaps current generation and future generation. These um, variables will change meaning in those analogous relationships to a certain extent. Um, you know, uh, intimacy and trust might weigh a lot less or they might need to be interpreted differently. Um, skills of communication might not matter at all. Uh, since, especially in the case of current generation to future generation, you are not communicating with them. Um, special responsibilities might matter quite a lot. Um, so I mentioned that the conditions for um, thinking about whether this kind of intrusive uh, help is appropriate are a matter of degree, and I think the matter of degree the, um, there are lots of different ways that you can offer this kind of help and the, the, the more intrusive the sort of help you have, the more important it is that those conditions are met. So uh, this is a, a kind of increasingly intrusive list of, of types of help that you might offer to a friend. You can give kind of um, advice where you just talk to Henry and say, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. I think you should read this book. Um, you can offer extrinsic reasons for the friend to change, so which would essentially be something like, here's this book, read it for me. I know you don't care, but just read it for me. Um, you can remu remove or refuse support. Uh, so Henry brings you yet a, another manuscript for feedback, and you say, you know what, I'm done with your writing career. I am no longer helping to further that goal. And then manipulation and force, obviously, much more intrusive. I think they can sometimes be warranted if uh, a friend's current values are sort of dysfunctional enough. So someone perhaps who has gotten uh, indoctrinated into a cult might be, force might be warranted at that point. So this is um, essentially just a summary of the last few slides and those are the conditions for um, ensuring that this, the kind of uh, help that ignores or discounts a person's actual values are appropriate, and the more, I think the more intrusive the kind of help you're giving, the more important it is that these conditions are met. So to go back to the problem that I started with, um, the problem was essentially that, uh, in a really tiny nutshell, um, a highly elaborated or detailed ideal uh, is likely to be alienated from the person who's, or the risk is that it will be alienated from the person whose well-being it is. And what I'm suggesting is the solution is that in the, well, in the theory of well-being, you define the ideal as a, an, a, a kind of paradigm that can be filled out in different ways that doesn't have detail, it's not meant to have detail. 
And then you treat the problem of how the ideal is specified, how it's described as a life to live, and how it could actually help anybody make choices. You treat that as a practical problem to be solved um, as a matter of first order ethical theory, so as a matter of, or, or perhaps just first order ethical judgment. So it's a practical ethical problem that you solve as you are in the context of trying to um, help somebody. And there are other contexts as well. Could, the context could be that you're trying to figure out how to live your own life. Um, I just wanted to point out there's some cases in which what you should do to help is very obvious. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.